Well, good morning. How are we? Good? Two of you are good. All right. The rest of you are not. Welcome. It's a, a blessing to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, my name's uh, Fernando Ortiz, and uh, I'm the pastor of a Mile High Calvary in uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. And um, I'm just uh, so excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I've uh, known Pastor Eric for a very, very long time. Um, I think since 2001 is when we first met. And uh, he and I have been really good friends, and he called me this last week and uh, said, Hey, Fernando, do you believe in free speech? And I was like, well, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm an American. Like, yeah, I believe in free speech. And he was like, good, come give one. So, <clears throat> so uh, I'm here uh, this morning. Um, as you probably noticed, my name is Fernando. My parents did name me after an ABBA song. And... Um, if you don't know who Abba is, you're blessed, okay? You are blessed. Um, but uh, I, want, I do want to tell you, you know, it's a, a blessing to be here and, you know, knowing Pastor Eric for so long and um, knowing this uh, church and seeing the ministry from afar. Let me tell you guys, you guys are blessed as a church. And it is a, a blessing to see what the Lord is uh, doing in and through you guys and your church and your leadership, um, Pastor Eric and Pastor Robert and Pastor Sean and just uh, Pastor Dan and just everyone else that's a part of this ministry. And Hebrews and Timothy tells us to honor our leaders. And since October is Pastor Appreciation Month, can we just give a round of applause to all of the leaders and just uh, what God does in and through them? You know, I'll, I'll tell you, this year's probably been one of the hardest years for pastors and leaders. Um, you know, number one, preaching to empty rooms is the weirdest thing ever. And then on top of that, you get pulled in different directions. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And, and just trying to see what the Lord is calling us as pastors and leaders to do. And so please be praying for them. Lift them up. Encourage them. Chipotle gift cards don't hurt either. Um, you know, just, uh, just bless them. And we're just thankful for them. Can we also welcome those that are listening online? I know we have many brothers and sisters watching in their living rooms right now. So can we welcome them as well? We're grateful you can join us online. <clears throat> well, we're going to be, if you would, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be covering verses 10 through 13 this morning. And as you are turning there, let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can gather this morning as brothers and sisters in the Lord to open up your word and to learn and to grow. I pray, dear Jesus, that you would speak to us, that you would work mightily in this place, as well as work in our living rooms if we're watching online. I pray, dear God, that we would not leave here the same. And we do ask if there's anyone here or anyone watching online that doesn't know you, I pray that you would speak to them specifically today as well. So we give you this morning and we give you this time and all God's people would say, amen. amen. Can we say it like we mean it? And all God's people would say, amen, amen. amen. Well, I, uh, I heard of a story of a young kid by the name of uh, Johnny and uh, you see, here's the thing with Johnny. Johnny was a, um, what we would call a naughty little boy. He would pull his sister's hair. Um, he would not listen to his parents and disobey and, and so on. And, and so Christmas was coming up and Johnny was thinking of the things he wanted for Christmas. And he thought, you know, I want a new bicycle. 
Well, his parents, knowing that he was kind of a naughty little boy, um, told Johnny, listen, if you want a new bicycle, why don't you write Jesus a letter and let's see if uh, Jesus gets you a bicycle for, um, you know, Christmas. And so Johnny goes upstairs to his bedroom and he pulls out his fat Crayolas and he then begins to write a letter and he says, dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year. Um, I would like a bike. I love Johnny. And realizing, well, you can't really lie to Jesus, he crumbled it up and he threw it away and and he began to write his second letter and he writes, Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Um, I would really like a bike. Uh, Love, Johnny. And he just, uh, that's not going to work either. And in the distance, he heard some uh, church bells ringing and he got an idea. And so he walked out of his bedroom and down the stairs and out his front door and across the street to the big church and up the stairs and opened up the big doors. And he walked down to the front of the stage and there he saw a statue and he grabbed a statue, put it in his jacket and ran out the church and down the stairs, across the street, back into his house, up up into his bedroom. And he put the statue underneath his bed and he began to write his third letter letter. And it said, dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mom again, you better give me a bike. (laughs) You know, I think sometimes as believers, we maybe are a little bit like Johnny. As believers, as pastors, as servants, as leaders, you know, we maybe have a tendency to think that maybe God is maybe angry with us. That God is never going to bless us. He's never going to give us the things we want and or even desire. And rather than go to the Lord in moments of need, well, we live our lives being held hostage. Rather than going to the throne of grace, we hide ourselves in a room of isolation or shame and regret. And these thoughts of shame and fear and regret don't come from our Savior who wants to bless us and bestow grace upon us. No, 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 no. These things actually come from another source, an enemy who is very real and wants to destroy us, an enemy who wants to isolate us, an enemy who wants you to doubt the goodness of God. And the reality is, is whether we like it or not, as believers, each and every single one of us are in a battle. There is a battle being waged all around us in the spiritual realm, and unfortunately, many Christians are not prepared for that fight. Most often we don't know who the enemy is and we have no plans for victory and have little, if any, training. And this morning what Paul the Apostle is going to do is he's going to instruct us in the fine art of spiritual warfare and remind us of the real battle that takes place, of a very real and present enemy and how Christians can stand against those attacks. And so if you're taking notes this morning... I've titled this morning's message, The Devil Wears Prada. Yes. And we're going to be looking at three points. We're going to look at verse 10 through 11 and see how to know your enemy, to know your enemy. Verse 12, our second point, to know your battle. And then verse 13, to know your victory. Know your enemy, know your battle, and know your victory. Now, let me just kind of set the scene as, what, as to what's going on in the book of Ephesians so we're all on the same page and moving in the right direction. Paul the Apostle, the writer of this book, is currently, when he's writing it, he is currently in jail. 
He is on death row. He believes he is going to die for all intents and purposes. And we do know, according to history, he'll be released after this and go on another missionary journey and then ultimately die for the Lord. But for all intents and purposes, he believes he is going to die. And in this prison, he writes a series of epistles that we call the prison epistles. And in that, he writes to the church at Ephesus. And this church specifically, Paul loved intensely. He spent the majority of his ministry in Ephesus, loving these people, baptizing these people, leading them to the Lord, doing baby dedications. I mean, he just, he loved these people um, dearly. And he writes this book thinking this is his last uh, homage to them, his last kind of love letter to them. And he wants to remind the church of all the blessings that they have in the Lord. He wants to remind the church that Well, at the end of the day, to keep on trucking and to run the race well, he tells the church that they're saints, they're saints in Christ, that you're either a saint or you ain't, right? It's not good grammar, but it's great theology. You're a saint in Christ and that you've been made alive and that you were once far off, but now you've been brought near to Christ, that you're once far, but now you're near. It's kind of like Grover from Sesame Street. Do you remember? He would run up to the screen and go, near? Far, right? That's what he would do. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, you've been brought near to Christ because of his blood that God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. And in that he transitions to chapters four, five, and six and talks about the blessings you can have in your relationships with um, husbands and wives and employers and employees. But then as he closes out the book, he kind of closes it in a weird way by reminding the church in his final remarks that there is a very real and present enemy that wants to take all of those blessings from you. That we have an enemy who wants to prevent us from walking with God. We have an enemy that wants to take away all of God's blessings. And that we have an enemy who hates God and he hates you. And he set up an army against you. And while God has great plans for you, the devil also has plans for you as well. And sometimes those plans look slick. Sometimes those plans, well... The Bible says sin is pleasing for a season. They look great for a while. That's why the devil wears Prada. But in the end, they're deadly. And so notice our first point as we jump in. You've got to know your enemy. Verse 10 of chapter 6. It says, finally, my brethren, as he's closing out the book, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Paul starts by saying, be strong in the Lord. Remember, the Christian life is not a playground, but rather a battleground. And we have an enemy who is strong. The Bible on many occasions calls him a lion, or a dragon. First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant because your enemy, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When you think about a lion or when you think about a dragon, uh, these are apex predators. The lion is the king of the jungle, the king of the savannah. The Komodo dragon is the top of the food chain on the Galapagos Islands, right? These are apex predators, And so we have an enemy that is very strong, but yet we're called to be strong in the Lord. 
we can't fight in our own strength. Because at the end of the day, what does the Bible call us as Christians? We're called sheep. And sheep really have no chances against an apex predator, if you think about it. I mean, sheep are just dumb animals, aren't they? They lead other sheep astray. They'll go off cliffs. They'll get lost. If you want to disprove the theory of evolution, sheep, just you sheep. Because in the battle of survival of the fittest, sheep shouldn't have survived. They have no fangs, no quills, no skunk-like odor. Um, There's nothing to defend themselves. At the end of the day, they're just really sweaters with hooves. And And yet the Bible refers to us as sheep, sheep who wander off, sheep who get lost, sheep who are helpless, sheep who are in constant need and faced against a lion or a wolf or a dragon. Well, at the end of the day, a sheep is going to lose. So how do we as Christians be strong? Well, it's in the Lord. We have a loving shepherd who protects us. And has given us the tools to fight off the lion and the dragon. We have a shepherd who has given us the armor of God to protect us because he doesn't want to leave us helpless. He wants us to be sheep that are protected. He wants us to be like Rambo sheep or Rambo sheep. And so Christians can never rely on their own strength because at the end of the day, we will crumble. No, we must tap into the mighty power of the Lord With the Lord as our power source, even just a little strength is enough to claim victory. And it's only through the strength of Jesus that we can stand in this ongoing battle that we fight each and every single day. But remember, at the end of the day, the enemy is waiting to bring us down. But we have hope because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in you and I. And so as believers, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory because Jesus has already won the battle. He's already secured the victory over Satan and sin and death and and the demons at the cross. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? So we must be strong in the Lord, in Jesus, if we're going to win. But to make sure that we don't end up as carnage on the battlefield, we do have to know our enemy. To make sure that we don't wave the white flag of surrender, we do have to know our enemy. In a recent poll conducted by Gallup on the state of religion in America, it stated that roughly 86% of Americans believe in God, while only 63% of Americans actually believe in the devil. In the movie, The Usual Suspects, one of the characters quotes saying that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I would say that that is true because for many, the devil is just kind of a silly concept. You know, growing up, for me, just seeing Saturday morning cartoons, the devil was always just this guy that wore red legatarts and he had a hipster mustache and a pitchfork and he controlled the thermostat in hell and that's who he was. But at the end of the day, the devil is very real. And Christians get him wrong in a couple of ways. Number one, sometimes we go to one extreme to the point of disbelief. Well, he's just not really there. He's just a figment of our imagination. Or number two, we go to the opposite extreme and we blame everything on the devil. You know, I got a flat tire on my way to church today. The devil doesn't want me worshiping Jesus. Or you just got a flat tire. I mean, 
you know, don't blame everything on the devil. But the reality is, is as believers, we should focus more on Jesus, but we do need to know our enemy. The Bible gives him many names, accuser of the brethren, lion, Satan, adversary, tempter, murderer, um, liar, a lion, a serpent, the God of this age. And while he is very real, we must remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But for starters, number one, you need to remember this, that the devil is a created being. Isaiah chapter 14 describes the devil as Lucifer. And he was a guy that, uh, an angel that was filled with pride in his heart saying, I want to be like God. I will ascend to the throne of the most high. And he, well, got kicked out of heaven, took a third of the angels with him, who we now call demons. And there he now lives here on this earth and has access to heaven and can go to and fro. But at the end of the day, number one, he is a created being. So many times we think that the devil is equal with God, that he's the opposite of God, and that somehow, some way, when the devil and God fight, that the Lord actually feels some of the punches from the devil. No, 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 no. God is up here, and the devil is down here with you and I as created beings. He is not all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's limited in his knowledge and his activities. And so remember, God is up here. And the devil is down here. He can't even go one round with the Lord. But because he wants to try to be like the Lord and because he's so filled with pride and knows his fate, he hates God. And because you and I are created in the image and in the likeness of God, you can be certain that he hates you as well. Because anything that God loves, the devil hates. And God loved you so much that he would send his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that we can have eternal life. And so you can be certain that the enemy is going to go after you, which might help you understand why you get so much grief for being a Christian, from your coworkers, from people with your last name even. You belong to Jesus, you were purchased by his blood, and the devil will do anything he can to keep you away from him. And he will uh, always attack the people that God loves. Notice what Paul tells us as well. That we're called to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The idea here is that the enemy, the devil, is crafty. He's cunning and not crafty like he likes to scrapbook and go down to Joanne's and, you know, or anything like that. But, but rather that he's smart, he's cunning, he's slick. And he'll come up with temptations and accusations and manipulations and tactics and methods to keep you from the great things that God wants for you. The devil has, you could say, a master's degree in trigonometry. And while he can't keep you from heaven, he will do anything and everything he can to keep you from taking anyone else to heaven with you. And so he's crafty in his deception. And one of the ways that he works is he likes to cause doubt in our lives. He likes to ask questions. Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden in the book of Genesis? They're Adam and Eve. They're hanging out. It's a great day. They're with the Lord. And then all of a sudden the serpent comes and he starts asking these questions. Did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of that tree? Or remember, he's a serpent, so he would, did God really say, okay? 
he starts asking these questions. Why? Because if he can get you to doubt God, then he, get, he can get you to disobey God. And if he can get you to disobey God, then he can uh, have his plans for your life, which is to lie, kill, steal, and destroy all that God has for you. So you have to know your enemy. We can't be uh, ignorant of what he wants to do. And so he's crafty. He's, he's cunning. Um, he, at the end of the day, though, is a created being. Notice our second point. He's also organized. So you got to know your battle. Verse 11. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. While we can't see him or touch him, he will fight against us in ways that are hard to detect. And he will use any means he can, guerrilla warfare, uh, his hierarchy of helpers, because he can't be in every place at once. So he'll send his workers, his corporals, his privates, his sergeants. But at the end of the day, one of the things we need to remember in our battle against the enemy is that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against demons and darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. You see, it's important for us to remember that because so many times we think our battle is against flesh and blood. We think our battle is against our boss. We think our battle is against our husband or our wife or our children or our neighbors or our political opponents or whoever it might be. No, 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 no. Our battle is against flesh and blood. The problem is not with your neighbors or the other drivers on the road. It's against demons and principalities and darkness. And he will use people to aggravate situations to help lead to spiritual disaster, but they are not the enemy. And even though we don't hear bombs uh, dropping or bullets whizzing by our heads, we must remember that we live in a battlefield and it's not a playground. And so he will use his enemy, his, he will use his powers and whatever he can to try to destroy you and lay landmines along the way. Sexual temptation, drunkenness, foolishness, gossip, lying, busybodies, false religions, bitterness, condemnation. And so one of the things that we need to remember is whether you're young or old, whether you're black or white, whether you're male or female, whether you're Mac or PC, whether you're a new believer or a seasoned believer, Satan has plans for your downfall. And this battle is against things that are unseen. You know, so many times we feel the pressures of the things going on around us. And we wonder, God, why are these things happening? Well, one of the things that could be the case is that the enemy is trying to bring you down. Well, we wonder, why are these trials there? Well, maybe the trials are there because God is trying to do something bigger and better in your heart and in your life. You know, we all face trials. But these trials are for the purpose of growing us and changing us and molding us and shaping us more into the image of God so that we can be more prepared for those battles that are taking place all around us. And I think about the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 41. Remember, the Lord gave him these dreams, these amazing dreams, and his brothers hated him for it. These dreams that he was going to be in charge And his brothers decide, you know what? Well, we don't like that. So we're going to sell you into slavery. 
And then they dip his uh, tunic in blood and bring it back to Jacob and, and tell Jacob, hey, maybe, you know, some wild animal had killed Joseph. And, and he then is then sold into slavery. And he's then bought by Potiphar and he's in Potiphar's house. And the Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife has eyes for young Joseph. These temptations start coming and she asks him to lie with him. And so while at the end of the day, Jacob thought Joseph had been attacked by some wild animal in Israel, the reality was was he was being attacked by a cougar in Egypt. And and these (laughs) attacks are coming against him and there's these temptations rising up against him. And he could have said, yeah, 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 why not? You know, the enemy, you know, the, the Lord hasn't done anything for me. I'll, I'll give in to these temptations. But at the end of the day, he knew where he was going. He knew what God had called him to do. And ultimately, he would end up second in command of Israel, gets to ride around on air chariot too. He gets uh, the king's, you know, Pharaoh's black card, the American Express black card to do whatever he wants, the signet ring. And, and these, these pressures and these trials, well, for Joseph at the end of the day, were to grow him. He could have gone to isolation. He could have um, gone into temptation, but he didn't because he knew his battle. He knew that the pressures coming against him were ultimately to grow him in his walk with God. You know, geology, one of the things I learned from my science teacher in high school was that geology really is the study of pressure and time. Pressure and time, just the chemicals of rocks and what happens with them over the course of, of time as pressure is applied to them. And, and when you think about that, I've got a piece of coal here. And a, a piece of coal is made of carbon. And, and when you apply pressure onto it, and time onto it, what you eventually end up getting is a diamond. This is my wife's engagement ring. She let me borrow it for the weekend. But see, what you have is when you apply pressure and time to a piece of coal, pressure and time, pressure and time, what you end up getting is a diamond. And James chapter 1 tells us that, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that these trials are, are a testing of your faith to produce patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, the enemy would love nothing more than to bring us down and destroy us. But God wants to allow those battles that take place in our lives to produce a beautiful diamond. For Joseph, the pressure of, of ultimately being falsely accused and going to prison and being sold into slavery led him to being second in charge of Egypt. And pressure and time are essential to the Christian walk. And the very understanding of the Christian walk is par and course with pressure and time. It's called sanctification. You see, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are justified in that moment. Justification. That is instantaneous. You're forgiven. When you die, you end up in glorification. You are in the presence of Jesus immediately. But in the middle, there's this little thing called sanctification. And sanctification is hard. It is long. It is difficult. But the Lord is working and producing something within us. So how will you react? How will you uh, determine what kind of a person you will be? Because when 
a piece of coal is taken out of the ground early, you know what happens to it? Nothing. It remains a piece of coal, black and dark. And sometimes when the pressure and the time and the things that take place in our lives hurt, we want to take ourselves out of those situations. We want to take ourselves out of the battle. But the Lord wants to do a work within us. So stay in there. Keep on trucking. Stick it out. The enemy will use different things to bring us down. There are six things I see in Scripture, at least, that you can jot down that the enemy will use so you know your battle. Number one, he'll say you're a loser, so why even try? The Bible tells us in Revelation that he is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us day and night. He's the one that makes you feel unworthy. He's the one that says you're not going to be blessed like little Johnny. He's the one that says you're a horrible Christian. But 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not only ours, but for the whole world. You're not a loser. God gave everything for you. Number two, he'll say you can't trust God. You have to do it yourself. When faced with problems, we think, well, you know what? How can I fix this? No, 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 no. How can the Lord fix it? Number three, he'll say you can be passive about sin. Ah, it's just a little bit of sin. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. And it's easy to forget that we are in a war. And consequently, uh, being passive about sin can destroy us. Galatians 5.13, brethren, you have been called to liberty, but do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Number four, he'll say, change is too hard, so might as well stay the same. That's too hard, it's too difficult, but the Bible tells us that we can grow. Romans 11.33 says, The depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Basically, God is so deep that you will never be able to understand Him completely ever. You can keep on growing, keep on learning, keep on changing. Number five, he'll say that you have to earn God's grace. But Paul has already told us in Ephesians that it's by God's grace that you've been saved through faith. Not anything that you do of your own volition. Number six, he'll say that your past defines you. And this is one of the things that can cripple us. But for the believer, our past does not define us. The moment you become a Christian, you are now a new creation in Christ. All the old things have gone. You are now made new. So why doesn't it feel like that all the time? Why do we still doubt? Why do we still feel like we're not forgiven in our day-to-day -day lives filled with distractions and pain and sin? You know, why do we feel like we don't belong? Lord, why? We have questions, I'm sure, in our heads. Lord, I'm, I'm saving myself for marriage. I'm trying to be pure. I'm, I'm trying to remain faithful to you. And, and all of my friends are hooking up and shacking up. And, and finally, they get boyfriends and girlfriends. And I'm better looking than they are. And, and yet, here I am trying to remain pure. And we wonder, Lord, why? Why do these things take place? Well, listen, at the end of the day, we must remember that we are not perfect people. Only Jesus is perfect. We are not perfect. Actually, I did hear of a story of a perfect man and perfect woman. 
Perfect man, perfect woman. They finally met. It was a perfect day. They had a perfect dating relationship. Then they got engaged. It was perfect proposal. And then they got married. It was a perfect wedding day. I mean, everything was just perfect. And a couple months went by. And, and being the perfect couple that they were, you know, it's Christmas Eve. They were driving down the road. And along the side of the road, they saw a Kris Kringle broken down on the side of the road. And being the perfect couple that they are, they, they didn't want to disappoint the kiddies of the world. And so they brought Kris Kringle into their car and drove him on down. But before long, the roads were really snowy. And then all of a sudden, an accident took place and only one person survived. We would probably ask who survived. Well, the perfect woman, of course, right? Because everybody knows there's no such thing as Kris Kringle or the perfect man. <laughs> but wait, wait, wait. Since there's no such thing as Kris Kringle or the perfect man, that must mean the perfect woman was driving, which explains the accident in the first place. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. That was a joke. You can send all of your emails to Pastor Robert at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Okay? Listen, there are no perfect people. God, in his grace, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to redeem us because he was perfect. Because you and I were held in bondage. And at the end of the day, one of the things that we must remember is that salvation is not something that we can buy or trade for or clean ourselves up for it, reincarnate ourselves and pay God back for it. No, 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 no. Salvation is given to us by the Lord in his perfect ability to be able to love us and give everything for us that we need. The best way to look at it is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, perfection. What, is, what does that mean? That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. Who sin? Our sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. So this is, this is what that means. When Jesus was on this earth, he lived the perfect life. And there he was on that final evening in the upper room with his boys, and he's just washed their stinky feet, and he's just held communion. And he leaves that room, and he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he plumps down and, and cries out to the Lord and says, Father, if there's any other way that we can do this, let's do it. If there's any other way we can do this, let's do it. But not my will, but your will be done. And listen, if there was another way that this could have happened, salvation could have taken place, I'm sure they would have gone that route, but there couldn't be. Because, well, blood was required. And so then Jesus is arrested and he is beaten and he is flogged and he is open-handed slapped and he is mocked and spit upon. And then they blindfold him and beat him with a stick like a pinata and ask him to prophesy as to who's hitting him. And then they drag him out of Jerusalem naked and put him on Calvary and pierce him on a cross and because of the way that his hands are the the lungs would begin to fill with blood and that's the reason why he would cry out to God the Father and as he's dying on the cross he'll finally shout those final words to telestai it is finished what is finished the moment that God would make him who knew no sin to be sin 
that we might become the righteousness of God. What that means is that every single time Jesus was beaten and mocked and spit upon and nails driven through his hands and his feet was, was in that moment on the cross, every thought I've ever had, every offense I've ever committed, every bit of wickedness for my own heart, every bit of shame or lie or stumble or every bit of offense or foolish fantasy, every sin that was an offense to God was taken off of me and placed on Jesus Christ. It's in the cross that I am no longer an enemy of God. It is in the cross that God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, that I might now become perfect, that I might now become righteous. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. It's the greatest trade in human history. And the devil would love nothing more than to get us to be distracted. He would love nothing more than to get his minions uh, to bring us down. But no, 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 no. We need to remember that because of Jesus, we are now made righteous. And as the great theologian Tom Petty once said, I will stand my ground, right? And I won't back down. Why? Because notice our third point. You got to know your victory. It says this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We cannot win in our own strength. We must put on the whole armor of God. God has given us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And this is why we have Jesus and his righteousness. Because here's a guarantee, whether you are Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, there are going to be times when you feel lost. There are going to be times when you fail. There are going to be times when you blow it and you get off track. And without missing a beat, the devil will come and start lurking. And he will love nothing more than to whisper in your ear and use his skillful words to bring you down, maybe calling into question who you are in Jesus. But we can stand, having done all to stand, because of the armor of God. And one of the things in the armor of God is the word. One of the things that we as believers got to do is get the word into our hearts and into our lives. Because when the enemy wants to come and say, no, 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 there's no way God could forgive you of that. He can say, no, you know what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm completely forgiven. When, when you feel like you're in bondage and the enemy wants to hold you down, you can say, no, 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 no. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That I have a purpose. I am his handiwork. That I am made new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Remember, Jesus has already won the battle for us. Before Jesus died for us, the condemnation of sin was in our lives. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It is taken off of us. But the devil would love nothing more than to remind us of those things. And we become isolated and alone and, and fearful. No, you've got to know your victory. Know that Jesus has already won the battle for you. Remember, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. And it's best played out in the lives of, of Peter and Judas. Think about it. Both Peter and Judas denied Jesus. Both Peter and Judas failed and blew it. 
The difference was Judas's condemnation led to him killing himself, and Peter's conviction led him to the feet of Jesus. And so when we think about conviction, allow the conviction of the, of the Lord to lead us to repentance and forgiveness. And when the enemy wants to bring up our past, when the enemy wants to bring up our mess-ups, when the enemy wants to um, remind us of the, the times that we've blown it, we just need to tell him, hey, bro, six feet social distancing, man, all right? Like, get back from me, Satan, all right? Don't, you can't whisper in my ear. Listen. We face an army whose goal is to defeat Jesus. And we have a real enemy who doesn't just wear red legatards, but has a real hatred and plan for us. And he is slick and he is cunning and he will do anything in his power to bring you down. And whatever he uses for evil, let me tell you, God will use for good. Because spoiler alert, the book of Revelation, we win in the end. Jesus wins in the end. But while we're here on this earth, we do have to engage in this battle. And individual battles can be lost if we haven't done everything to stand. And it will be a struggle until Jesus returns. But in the meantime, you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know your battle. And you've got to know your victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you this morning ever so grateful that you loved us so much that you would send your one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. We're so grateful, dear Lord, that Jesus has taken our sin and given us eternal life and restored us to a right relationship with you. But maybe this morning, dear Lord, there are people in this room who have never given their hearts or their lives to you. Maybe there are people watching online who have never given their hearts or their lives to you. Today is the day that you want to make them righteous. Today is the day that you want to make them perfect in you. Not based off of their own merits or their own abilities, but simply based on the fact that you love them and care for them. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your heart, you've never given your life to Jesus let me tell you, God loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you so that all the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through was so that he could be brought into relationship with you. And all you have to do, Romans tells us, is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And so if you're here this morning and that is you, would you have the boldness to raise your hand and say that I need Jesus? And I would love to pray for you this morning and encourage you. Is there anyone here, anyone in this room? Maybe you're watching online and you've never given your heart or your life to Jesus. Listen, we would love to know that you have that desire. And so you can fill that out in the comment sections on the Facebook page. Or you can even let the church know at info at rockymountaincalvary.org. And man, we would love to encourage you, send you a Bible and new believers packet. But if that's you, would you pray with me? And it's not a magical prayer, but one you've got to mean with your whole heart and say, Dear Jesus, today I admit that I am a sinner and that I've been held captive by the enemy. 
but I believe you came to this earth and lived the perfect life, that you died on the cross for my sin, and three days later rose from the grave, defeating the devil in hell and sin and death for me. And so today I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that you are Lord. I give you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.